Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Hello, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me today, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, books. I like them. Yes. You like them? <laughs> They're important. Assuming most yeah. of our listeners enjoy books, or this is going to be kind of a boring episode for them, potentially. Because <laughs> today we're going to yes. talk about libraries. Yay! Yes. All right. So this is great because libraries, of course, are actually very old. Um, but one of the fun things I thought we'd sort of start with is we might not ask ourselves, why libraries? Mm -hmm. They're very useful. But how did they right. come to be? You put all the books in one room so everybody can come and read them. And instead of having all of your own books at your house, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, why do it like that? Yeah. And of course, this also raises the point that there are different types. So we'll sort of go over that. Um, mainly, of course, historically, <laughs> libraries have been in religious centers, like temples or monasteries, um, palaces or centers of government. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there are private libraries that might also be in palaces, for example, um, in houses of noble people. Um, and then, of course, schools. Mm -hmm. Schools have libraries. Um, but yeah, so this the sense of sort of why libraries um, also goes back to the idea of writing, which we've sort of touched on before. Um, but the technology of writing. And this is one of those fun things, because a lot of these conversations come back around continuously. So next time, we're going to talk a little more about literacy, which is something we've also talked about. And we'll probably continue our library conversation as well with that. Um, but one of the funny things is um, when we talk more about literacy next time, we're going to talk about um, reading and also, which is goes with literacy, of course. Um, but uh, Paul Sanger has an article, Silent Reading, and in it, he actually sort of opens it by discussing the ways in which in the early 20th century, technologies like television and radio and the telephone people were suddenly worried that culture was, and this is, of course, one of those stereotypical moments when everyone gets worried about stuff. And, you know, the sort of idea was in giant sort of satiric square quotes, scare quotes, um, that history would like revert to being oral, hmm. right? That we were reverting into like the dark ages of the past when things were oral <laughs> and not written. Um, and obviously that didn't happen. Um, and now we have a new fear, which is connected to the internet. And I'm not quite sure how it goes. But it's something like, why do people need to know things if it's all on the internet? Oh, or something? yeah, librarians <laughs> are sort of taught how to combat um, that. Um, because yes. believe it or not, there is a lot of stuff that isn't on the internet. Yes. But not only that, I mean, the internet is a digital right. library. Yeah, that's true. Ways. It does what libraries do, right? Um, libraries didn't... And of course, nowadays, we obviously recognize that libraries are storehouses of knowledge. They did not stop people from knowing things, although we can talk a little bit about control of texts mm -hmm. and stuff. But um, the internet is sort of the same way, right? It gives people access to knowledge. It does not keep people from being able to know right. things or it does not make your brain well. mush is basically the point. Like <laughs> problematically, it's not it that it can allows you access but, you know. to 
the fire hose. And I think we would say yeah. that, like, if you Google, for example, um, vaccines, you can get a lot of information right. about vaccines. And some of it is accurate yes. and some of it is not accurate. Right. Well, so, this brings us back yeah. right to the idea of literacy, mm -hmm. right? That um, you have to be literate. And literate doesn't just mean the technical ability to read mm -hmm. words. Yeah. <laughs> literacy goes beyond that. Right. So we'll continue this next time. But this is a good sort of foundation for this discussion, because it is a really important thing to remember that technology has changed throughout history. But in some ways, there are certain technologies like writing that led to revolutions that really even modern revolutions that seem extraordinary and are extraordinary, like the digital revolution, um, are really still rooted in the original technology of writing. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really where it all started. And we're still we're just finding new ways to go about right. it. In a lot of ways. Um, so writing is a technology. What does this mean? Um, one of the things I have my students read excerpts from a book called How Things Shape the Mind uh, by Malaforis. And this is the sort of, you know, point is um, kind of embodied learning, cognitive, mm -hmm. you know, um, learning what, what really happens. And so the idea, um, he has a chapter or a section of a chapter, I don't know, on linear B tablets, basically, um, and sort of goes over the argument that writing, and this is why I said that writing was a technology that really sort of pushed this revolution. Digital library, sort of, right, Wikipedias, things like this, have shifted this, but it's part of sort of the same question, um, that it has actually changed how we think. And that's in a very sort of real sense, um, that when you can write things down, so we've talked before about writing, originally, of course, most of it's rec record keeping, so you write down how much grain is coming in, and how much grain is going out, and you keep all your little <laughs> clay tablets that tell you these. Um, that once you've started writing them down and you don't have to have them memorized, that suddenly you realize you can record this information and then you can categorize it by region. And you could do it, for example, by, you know, east, south, northwest or something, <laughs> right? Um, where, where does the grain come from? Or you could do it by who brings in the mm -hmm. most, who brings in the least, right? Um, there are all sorts of different ways you could categorize your knowledge once it's written down. And that the ability, you know, this is a sort of cliche even now where people say, well, I have to sort of write it down and look at it. Um, or you might do this digitally. You might do it yes. literally to this day on index cards and move them around. A lot of people find that writing things down helps them learn it better. Mm-hmm. But yes. one other interesting um, thing about um, the internet, I guess, in terms of organization is that suddenly, instead of having to physically put your clay tablet in one pile or a different pile, you can put it in all the piles, basically. Um, which is kind of neat when you think about it, that you can, like, cross-reference everything to everything. And mm -hmm. that's Wikipedia, but also... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the entire internet is basically... Yeah. Well, the idea of the hyperlink, mm -hmm. I remember in grad school when this was kind of new, so to speak, um, that there were articles written about that idea of the hyperlink and the ways in which it um, 
digitized technologies that already yeah. existed, which were things like, yes, <laughs> how you could categorize things and then go down the rabbit hole. Um, and now it's just easier to, mm -hmm. to do that. Um, but exactly, right? And that this, this can fundamentally change the way we, we think. Um, when suddenly you realize you can shift things around and categorize things in different ways and all of this stuff. Um, and of course, libraries to this day, right? They are, as I said, sort of at the beginning, right? They are storehouses of knowledge. Um, but if we think of them this way, there are more than that. They're also, in some sense, external brains. Right. Um, right. There is a <laughs> interesting Feynman story, uh, Richard Feynman, who he took like a class on biology for some reason and he had to do he's you know a big time physicist but he had to do a presentation and he got up and he started drawing like um what he called a map of a cat an anatomic diagram and labeling all the parts and people in the class were like oh no no we know all of the parts that's fine you can skip that and he said but why would you bother memorizing it? You can just look it up. So, right. yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is sort of the point, right? That libraries serve as sort of an external mm -hmm. brain. Um, and that is to say, so in part, an external storage unit, as you might have for a computer, right? Extra memory disk. Um, but also more than that, that it's a thing that really can shape, shape the way certain ideas are um, mm -hmm. found, organized, shape how they're organized. Um, and so there are basic ways, of course, that libraries do this just to make things accessible. Um, Dewey Decimal, of course. Library, <laughs> Library of, of Congress. Congress forever. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, Especially because I believe Dewey had, had well, some big issues. Um, my favorite part is that he would prefer to have spelled his name um, D-U-I because he wanted to rationalize the spelling of English. That's why it's spelled, oh, wow. his first name is spelled M-E-L-V-I-L -L instead of M-E-L-V-I-L-L-E, -L -L -E, the way that Herman Melville spells it. Um. <laughs> wow. But yeah, That's he, interesting. Was, he was an interesting guy. There's other classification systems, too. Um, there's one by a guy, I think his name is Ranganathan. Mm -hmm. um, S.R. Yeah. Ranganathan had like this crazy five-faceted um, method of organizing things. It's I think it's called colon classification. Um, I'm trying to remember what they actually use in, the, in Britain because... Because um, they probably don't yeah. use Library of Congress. Yeah, so, so that is a thing, right? Is <laughs> the that, British Library, of course, has yeah. its own system. Um, yeah. That is a thing, is that especially Library of Congress is very biased in favor of American stuff, which makes sense yes. if you are a library that is supposed to serve Congress. Like, that is officially what they are. <laughs> um, yeah. But also, if you're, you know, looking at the way the classification is broken down, and there's, like, a huge section for American literature, and then, like, a very a small section for foreign literature... If you happen to be living in one of the non-American places, maybe you don't want to try to put all of your books into, like, that tiny segment of numbers. Because right. you don't want to have, like, you know, six digit, six extra digits at the end of your call number or whatever. But Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and of course, the point is that classification is sort of the beginning of this thought process, right? So um, we could bring up Foucault, <laughs> who wrote a book called The Order of Things, that talks about classification, basically. And of course, Foucault, one of the big points of power is knowledge, mm-hmm. um, in some very literal ways. And so the idea of classifying things, um, how we classify things, and then reclassify things, can have a tremendous impact um, on society. And this is very obvious, of course, um, even in science, if you look at things like evolution, this is sort of why it matters when occasionally an animal is reclassified somewhere else, right? Um, it's not just about trying to understand how evolution works, although that is very important, right? Um, but there, it is also very relevant to how we see the mm-hmm. world, Right. So the fact that we know that humans and chimpanzees are both descended from a similar ancestor has obviously shaped the way we think. <laughs> right. Um, the idea of evolution has shaped the way we think. Right. Um, so categorization really, really matters. Um, and so another comment, of course, is libraries that you should be able to sort of walk through the stacks. Um, this was something about card catalogs when they disappeared in favor of digital catalogs that of course, you can scroll through digital catalogs as mm-hmm. well. Um, but that, that idea that you need to be able to see things other than what you're looking for. Yes. Because the browsing is part of the experience. Yes. Technically, it's called collocation. Is um, When you, yes. you go to the shelf and there are a bunch of other books that are sort of on a similar topic to what you, the one that you looked up. but um, And you look at them and then you go, oh, hey that looks like it would be really useful. And I Mm -hmm. think everybody who's ever written a research paper has had that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then, and of course, from libraries, you can think about museums are cataloged in a similar way, right? You walk through wings that are based around certain ideas. Um, And there can be problems with the way those Mm -hmm. things set up, right? Colonialism, all the rest of it. But it, right. The sort of point is that there, there are ways which knowledge sort of organized and thought is really shaped. I should point out that museums and archives have their own uh, method of classifying things because they're often dealing with unique objects rather than um, mass printed books. Yes. Yeah. Um, But also worth pointing out, of course, um, because we talk about him a lot on this podcast. So Terry Pratchett and the library at Unseen University, where the knowledge in the books creates L L space, I believe. Yes. I get like a hyperspace like place and all libraries yes. are connected through. Yeah. It's sort of L interdimensional. Space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this interdimensional, you can kind of time travel in it. You can go back, you know, and you have to be very careful because librarians mm-hmm. have disappeared and this and that <laughs> exploded, you know, whatever has happened to say the least. Right. So our hero, the librarian who is in fact. Yeah. An orangutan. Yeah. Um, Yes, that he is, of course, very, very skilled in the ways of <laughs> the library. But it's the library magic that turned him into an orangutan in the first place. Um, anyhow, so so the, the magic, right, the, the power of that knowledge <laughs> um, and how it does shape, right? It can, in Terry Pratchett, it sort of literally bends time and space. Um, it may not quite do that, but it can mm-hmm. figuratively do that, even in the real world. Um, okay, so the sense of libraries and, and what they do right? And how, how they are repositories for knowledge and for thinking. Um, and this also brings us to 
the types of libraries that exist, which we sort of covered, right? So we're going to talk about, um, of course, there is the, I mean, the sort of, there are a couple problems with some of these categorizations, but essentially, <laughs> we tend to think of libraries as being, for example, either in the palace, in religious areas and schools, as I said, private, public, governmental, um, and the Library of Congress, of course, so this is the funny thing about this, right, that that is ostensibly, yes, it's the library for Congress, but it is also, in reality, the library in the United States that is supposed to have every mm -hmm. book published in the United States, generally speaking, right? They're supposed to have a copy of everything, and not just books, but music, all sorts of stuff. They do a lot of the um, cataloging. So if you open a book that has recently been published, um, often you'll see in the front cover Library of Congress cataloging in publication data. Um, and it, they give yes. usually a LCC number, a Dewey decimal number, um, suggested subject headings. And then when, you know, your small town librarian is adding the book to their OPAC, which is an online public access system, um, they can just look at it. And if they like the number, they can keep it. Um, sometimes, you know, you might have to move it by a couple of decimals because you have other things, but that's the basic idea. And mm -hmm. I think copyright is handled out of Library of Congress, too. Um, that's where the main mm -hmm. copyright office is. Cool. So, yeah, right, the sort of idea of basically it is, again, that idea of the government as being a repository for this knowledge, right? Because this is the other thing. Who gets to keep this knowledge? Who gets to have access to it? Now, essentially, the Library of Congress is public, on some level, I mean, you can't just go in and wander around, but um, it is supposed mm -hmm. to be public, right? That you can, you can access it. And that's the point, right? That the government has everything that all of its citizens can then access. It's a super cool building, too, um, by the way. If you can get a yes. tour ever, um, I recommend it because it's very much built in the style of basically a European palace type of thing with lots of mm -hmm. art like frescoes and mosaics and whatever um it's really yep. great yeah which is of course a callback to the idea that libraries frequently were in palaces mm -hmm. right which could be either private or governmental slash public depending right um yeah and that you frequently had these gorgeous reading rooms so um yeah, so a lot of these things have been around for hundreds, even thousands of years when it comes to libraries, right? And those questions of where do you keep it and who has access um, to all of this knowledge, which is really important <laughs> and fundamental to how we think, um, those are all sort of very long-standing questions. All right, so um, it is worth pointing out, oh, I think I was going to say that in addition, of course, to the Library of Congress, then we do have examples of some of the others. So... Um, the, you know, Bodleian Library School is technically a school mm -hmm. library. <laughs> um, the Beinecke is a school library. Um, you know, so of course, the great universities, I mean, yes. Madison, UW-Madison. Yeah, we have has, um, many libraries on campus. Memorial Library is yeah. kind of mm -hmm. everybody's favorite. But I think that the UW library system, at least when I was there as an undergrad, Memorial yeah. is the best, yes. Um, when I was there, it was... I think the biggest public university collection. Hmm. So sort of I think after I would believe you know, that. 
I suppose Yale and yeah. whoever. But yeah. When I was in library school, um, we were encouraged to go visit one of the libraries on campus. You know, just like check out the different libraries, and there are a lot of them. Um, I want to say somewhere in the neighborhood of more than twelve, but I don't know how many of them have been wow. um, collapsed since, like, you know, put they put the collections together. Right, right. I think the best reading room is either, like, the law school library has a very nice reading room, and, uh, I don't know, We the university is technically separate from the Wisconsin State Historical Society, but... Uh, the Historical Society mm, the is on campus, yeah, on campus. and they have a very yeah. nice, classy sort of um, Art Deco reading room. Yeah. They do. Yeah. Um, cool. And by the way, quick note, the Bodleian Library, of course, is yes. Oxford, <laughs> and the Beinecke is Yale. Yes. So if... <laughs> Just to, so those are the schools whose libraries those are. But um, the idea that, of course, they, they are famous libraries in their own rights, but they are technically, they are school libraries, right? This is, this is what we get. Um, yeah, so this is still, right, so this classification still holds true, right? I mean, this is still sort of what is true. Um, all right, so um, let us go back. Uh, we should probably mention, um, oh, Lionel Casson, Libraries in the Ancient World, which is a fun, cute little book. Um, I believe published by Yale. Um, and when I say f- fun and cute, this belies the amount of stuff you can find out from this <laughs> book <laughs> about ancient libraries. Um, but we might as well start sort of with the beginning. I figure we'll, we'll give some, some history to yeah. libraries. Because another one of the fun things about this, of course, is that um, this episode, and probably next time also, serve as a great reminder that the Modern world is deeply, deeply rooted in the Middle Ages, right? Despite what early modernists and Renaissance <laughs> scholars would have you believe, <laughs> um, the Middle Ages was not some dark ages when nobody was literate yes. and blah, 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 blah. It was definitely not that. So we're going to. Okay. So tell us out. Tell us right, about anyway. the oldest libraries. Yes. So the oldest ones. Um, <clears throat> so the Sumerians use clay tablets starting at least like 3000 BCE, which is great because they mm-hmm. last, right? This is the problem with Egypt. We have tons of stuff, of course, that they wrote on the walls of pyramids and temples and all sorts of stuff. Um, but we do have lots of papyri. It's not that we don't. Um, but fragments and, you know, only recently has sort of like micro... I don't know, it's not even x-ray technology, it's some sort of, you know, microscopic technology of x-raying, where you can see through them, and then digitally unfold oh, yes. them, you know, so you don't yeah, I them. just saw a um, an article the other day about unfolding letters that you have scanned with, like, a, I want to see it was MRIs, because they can pick up basically um, something magnetic yeah. in the ink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what they're doing is, yeah, it's... It's like an MRI or a CAT scan. It's it's that level of yeah um, ability, but yes, for <laughs> yeah for documents. So um, so we do have papyri, but those they're so much more fragile. Obviously, they burn in fire, whereas clay tablets just bake, which makes them even more durable than they were to yes. begin with. So libraries, of course, historically, fire is the enemy of libraries, but some of the earliest libraries 
This was not true because of the clay tablet. Um, it was true for Egypt, but not for uh, most of the other people in the region, right? Egypt had these great papyri plants that grew, that were very special sort of papyrus. Um, and so they had access to this that a lot of people didn't, which is fantastic, except when it comes to preservation. So um, near Nippur in southern Mesopotamia, um, excavations have found uh, groups of tablets from about the third millennium BCE, right? So we are talking the 3000s, right? Or this is the late 2000s at this point. Um, and these have things like lists of geographical names, lists of gods, lists of professions, writing exercises, uh -huh. which of course suggest that, right? So you start to put this together. Um, there are also hymns. And so with all of these lists, with the hymns, but also with writing exercises, the sort of assumption was that these are probably from a collection, which is to say a library, um, that was at a school for scribes. Okay. Right? Um, this might have been at a temple. Um, and that some of these, like the hymns or the lists of sort of gods and professions and geographical names, were things that maybe handy, um, Casson suggests, sort of kept handy for consultation. So it's like um, um, like so a that fair copy that they could look at to copy things from or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you were writing things down or if you needed to remember how to spell yeah. probably a geographical name or something. Yeah. Um, and of course, the fact of the writing exercises, right? So it suggests that this was a library that had both that was sort of at a school for scribes, but also probably part of a working scriptorium, essentially, um, possibly at a temple. Yeah. Um, and so also fun... This is exciting, right? Among the tablets that were found um, were two tablets from around 2000, right? Um, so these would be just a little bit later. Um, both, I mean, part of this group, right? But probably created sort of during the end of when these texts were created um, or thereabouts. Anyway, both inscribed with a list of Sumerian works of literature. Ooh. So myths, hymns, laments. Um one of them has 68 titles, the other has 62 titles. Um, they're pretty clearly the same collection, though, because 43 titles appear on both lists. The longer one has 25 titles down on the shorter one, and the shorter one has 19 titles that the longer one lacks. So it seems like probably um, the scribe sort of cataloged the collection that was at this place, right, in this library, um, and probably went through a bunch of tablets and then went through again okay. at a second time. Um, sort of maybe after some reshuffling or something to make sure that they got everything. Um, and this is, of course, as far as we know, kind of the first, what we would say, library catalog, right? So speak of how do you categorize yep. things? Um, and once, of course, you have enough text in your library, you have to, you have to know what you have because people will steal stuff. They might lose stuff. Um, they might mistakenly destroy it, especially, you know, clay tablets when mm -hmm. you drop them or something. Um, and so here we are, right? Um, this is our sort of earliest example of a catalog where they've listed everything in their library. So that is a sort of fun, fun example. Um, and, you know, also the idea just that it was big enough to catalog that they felt by the end, right, that they'd been collecting things for a while <laughs> throughout the millennium um, and that they had to write down yeah. what they had. Right. Um, all right. So that's pretty early. Um, we've also got in Syria at Ebla in Syria, um, which is an ancient site, of course, kind of by Aleppo. 
So it's like 30 miles from Aleppo or so. Um, this was in the Royal Palace. Um, and archaeologists found um, an archive, basically, right? A library um, filled with 2,000 clay tablets. Okay. That's so, a lot. Um, and they were there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big chunk. Um, and these are from around 2300 or so BCE, of course. Um, there was an invasion and the palace was set on fire. And of course, it all burned down, but then the clay tablets survived. Uh, but the, the way they were found, it seems that they were on wooden shelves. So they were cataloged, right? Like a library, they were cataloged on shelves. Um, and the shelves burned, but then the tablets just ended up in heaps on the floor because they baked. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So, um, yeah, so it's a great example. It was basically found right as it was, Mm -hmm. you know, untouched, sort of. Um, Mostly records, right? So uh, distributions of textiles and metals by the palace authorities um, and cereals, meaning grain. This is always my favorite example. Olive oil, agricultural land, breeding animals. Okay, so all of those records. But also... Again, you get lists um, in Sumerian of professions, locations, and also of birds and fish, um, as well as 28 bilingual lists in Sumerian, as well as um, the sort of ancient Syrian language spoken in Ebla. Um, oh, useful. I know yeah. that. Um, linguists so, are always looking for that sort of thing. Yes. Like the yeah. Rosetta Stone, right? Um so more than a dozen incantations, some in Sumerian, some in Eblite, um, and two tablets that were duplicates with the text of a Sumerian myth. Um, so it seems like there was there were all the palace records, but in this sort of archive of records was also very clearly the library for the palace scribes as well, right? With their sort of reference texts um, and myths, hymns, right? The sort of literature, um, the bilingual texts which is great, <laughs> right? Um, sort of for translation. Um, yeah. So the sense of this, you know, the palace system, you have all of the sort of record keeping, but you do have what we would think of a library today, which is essentially also the literary stuff. Um, and of course, things in multiple languages, as you said, the idea of, you know, the, this is also something libraries, libraries do. Um, yeah, so there's that one. Um, that's Syria. All right. And then we get um, in Hattusis, which is the, the Hittite capital. Um, this is 200 miles from Ankara. So, but, you know, you can actually look these things up on Google Maps. Actually, usually will tell you where these ancient sites are because archaeologists, you know. Oh, cool. Dig them okay. up. And then it'll like, yeah, it'll show you a lot of this. Stuff. Anyway. Um, so the Hittites are from sort of the 17th to the 13th century BCE. Um so that's like the 12 to the 1600s, right, BC. Um, and they have, um, so they've gone sort of a step further um, in their library creation <laughs> from what we've seen so far. Um, so there's, a again, a large number of tablets that came presumably from the royal palace. Um, and again, a lot of, of course, records, governmental records, um, but also a lot of... Um, Things like sort of um, books with Hittite versions of Sumerian and Babylonian epics. Oh, okay. 
Um, right. So, you know, literature, but they've, they're collecting now, right? So from Sumerian and Babylonian stuff, right? We're, we've gotten to a point in time where other people's stories are famous enough. You collect them for yourself, mm-hmm. right? So here we got the Hittite capital. They're collecting Sumerian and Babylonian stories. Um, and in some cases, after the end of the text, sort of on the back, there'll be several lines identifying the work, kind of like a title page today. Oh, interesting. Right? Um, the technical sort of word is a, a colophon, mm-hmm. right, which is from Greek. Um, but, yeah. So some of them, they say things like, here's some examples. Um, so the eighth tablet of um, the Dupa Duparsa festival words of Salui and Kutwala, the temple priestess, written by the hand of Lu, son of Nugusar, in the presence of Anuwanza, the overseer. Huh. Ta-da. So, um... It's a good idea to number The point them, is, right, honestly. it tells you... Like, that, that yes. would be such a pain if you're like, man, I got tablets one through seven and twelve, but I really want to know how it ends. Yes. Exactly. So this is the step up, right? Nippur had the catalog where they just listed all the stuff they mm-hmm. had. But now we've gotten to the point where, first of all, tablets themselves, if you just look at the back, you know, at the bottom, you'll see what it is, mm-hmm. which is really important because, of course, tablets, you know, depending on the size of the tablet, it might have a few things on it. Um, you need to know what, what's there quickly. You don't want to have to read the whole thing. Um, so it'll tell you that. And yeah, it'll tell you the number of the tablet, which is Brilliant, right? So to number your tablets that you would assume that they are in order, so you know if one is missing. Um, so this is the eighth tablet in this case, um, and tells you also fun other things that we want to know, like the author, right? So um, the temple priestess is clearly dictating to the scribe in the presence of the sort of master scribe. Huh. <laughs> yes. Right? Um, yeah, and then there's another one, the there's a third. It's a third tablet um, of the same woman, Kotala, the temple priestess. Not the end. Hmm. So it wants you to write the third tablet is to not the continued. end. There is more. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's the sort of quote is when I treat a man according to the great ritual. Um, so that's the first line of the text, and it's being used ah. as the title, which of course is okay, very yeah. common. Right. So that's what mm-hmm. this text is. Yeah. Um. And then there's another one that actually says it's the second tablet um, of Tutalias, the great king, on the oath, end. So this is the end. And then it says this tablet was damaged um, and in the presence of Mahuzi and Hawahu, so I guess um, two other scribes, presumably, um, I, Duda, restored it. Oh, okay. So this is a tablet that presumably came from a king somewhere. Right, who had um, written, you know, an oath or an agreement, something, the tablet arrived damaged and it was restored. Yeah. Yeah. So we have also our first sort of example of, um, you know, modern. Preservation. Yeah. You know, yeah. Modern preservation of, of books, of texts. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this clay tablet. Anyway, so this is what's going on with the Hittites. So we've obviously, we've reached sort of a level of library that is working on some level like libraries today. Right. Certainly like something like the Library of Congress that is at least partly governmental. Right. But things arrive. Are they damaged? You fix them. You restore them. Um, you definitely you catalog things. Who sent it? Who wrote it? How many are there? 
you know, how many volumes, right? Um, all these things are already part of the library. And we're only, you know, in like, basically the, you know, 15th century or whatever, um, BCE. So um, they also catalog their library, for sure. Um, and by the 13th century BCE, um, they have some pretty detailed bibli bibliographic entries um, for the library. And their entries begin by giving the number of tablets that make up the work being recorded, right? So you do know how many tablets are supposed to be nice. there. <laughs> um, and then identify the work, give the title, um, which might be the first line or might be sort of a summary of the contents. Um, and then, you know, you sort of say, like, where, where's the end, right? Um, you might get an author, something like that. Um, so, for example... And remember, this is a catalog now from the 13th century. So this is sort of, again, nearing the end of when all of this was compiled. So um, in this catalog, which itself, of course, is on separate tablets, um, some of the entries say things like, okay, three tablets on the spring festival of the city of Herma, how the presiding official celebrates the festival, first and second tablets missing. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. So there we go. Um, or another one is one tablet, words of Anana, the old woman. When one supplicates the storm god, not the end. Okay. <laughs> so the one tablet isn't the end. We don't know if there's something missing or if there's more coming. Um, yeah. So we have some sort of interesting. The I, I'm going to read this one just because I like it. Um, one tablet on the fine oil of Azari, the Hurrian woman doctor. When one leads the troops in battle against an enemy city and a charm using fine oil is put on the general who commands the army, one anoints the general, his horse together with his chariot, and all his battle gear. The end. Oh. Yeah. So this is one complete tablet. A woman doctor. Mm -hmm. is great. Um, clearly, doctor is a little more than just we think of today because we're talking about oil that's sort of a charm. <laughs> um but anyway, so there's a sort of, there's a whole sort of slew of these. Um, but that idea of telling you if, if it's missing, um, who came up with it, who wrote it, where it came from, all of those things. Yeah. So um, there we are. The Hittites really sort of get us moving on the, the modern library. Um, it is also worth pointing out, um, we don't know which specific monarchs or persons were responsible for founding this library. Um, so, you know, generally speaking. <laughs> um, and that, that holds true also for the earlier libraries, oh. right? Um, at, this is one of those issues that um, it, it is pretty clearly the province, presumably, of, of the ruler. I mean, someone must have had the idea to come up with this in the first place, right, at Nippur, at Ebla, um, certainly for the Hittites, but we're not quite sure who that person was. Um, so it's not until kind of, this is according to Kesson, at least, the end of the 12th century BCE, that we finally can name a potential founder of a library, um, and that's Tiglath Pileser I, who is Assyrian. Um, and of course, Assyria is going to have some famous, famous library yeah. libraries, basically. Um, you'll be very famous in the history of libraries. Um, but anyway, but so this ruler, um, his reign lasted around 1115 to 1077 BCE. This is, of course, the BCE, so we're counting down, so that's why 1115 to 1077, right? Counting backwards. Um, and this is at the temple of Assur, who's the you know, chief god of, um, Assyria, basically. So this is a temple library, um, but clearly connected to governmental needs on some level. 
Um, but anyway, so, okay, we're going to fast forward to Nineveh, because we got to mention this, right? Ashurbanipal, who <laughs> later, who was a king of Assyria, um, from roughly 668 to 627 BCE. So That's you'll notice we're now recent. way early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is, yeah. So um, we are, obviously, right? We're basically, this is why we're into him. Very much recorded mm-hmm. history at this point. I mean, all this has been recorded. Obviously, there's writing, there's libraries. But yeah, at this point, um, this is why, I mean, we yeah. know who he is. He lived for a long time. He lived forever. He ruled forever. I mean, he lived, he must have lived forever, but he ruled for a very long time. He put his name on everything. Um, yeah, absolutely. So this is a point at which he, he managed not to get erased. Um, and he, yeah, founds this library in Nineveh, which is giant and phenomenal and takes all the technology we've already learned um, and keeps going. Um, and so some of the fun things that we've seen, right? Cataloging, um, putting sort of the equivalent of a, uh, putting a colophon, right? Sort of the equivalent of a little title page, um, on your text. So you know what they are, um, adding that to the catalog, you know, how many tablets they're supposed to be, you know, sort of who wrote them, all those things, right? So we're learning, um, and it's funny because, of course, cataloging can also give you a sense of how things were shelved or how they were organized. Um, and so here we go, right? <laughs> um, Nineveh, basically in the ruins of Ashurbanipal's palaces, um, of two of them at least, there's just a giant, you know, quant- like tens of thousands of things, basically. Um, but the, the ruins, the stuff that we've got... Um, hundreds of examples of all of the sort of professional writings that we've talked about, record keepings, all of that. Famously, Gilgamesh, right? The Epic of Gilgamesh, the Epic of Creation, right? Um, yes. Um, the Enuma Elish. We've, we've talked a little bit about him um, in the uh, Nineveh Library before. Yes. Yeah. Um, and all of these texts you know, the sort of hundreds and hundreds, thousands of texts. Um, most of them have colophons that actually link them to Ashurbanipal. Oh. Right. So, I mean, he basically put his library stamp on these, right? <laughs> so oh. they say, like, Palace of Ashurbanipal, King of the World, King, King of, of the World. Um, I like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's a short one. Some of them are longer. So one example of a long one is Palace of Ashurbanipal, King of the World, King of Assyria, who trusts in Ashur Ninlil, whom Nabu and Teshmitu gave wide open ears and who has given profound insight. The wisdom of Nabu, the signs of writing as many have been devised. I wrote on tablets. I arranged the tablets in series. I collated them. And for my royal contemplation and recital, I placed them in my palace. Hmm. Okay. So there you are. Yeah. Now, this also brings up the fact that Ashurbanipal was literate. So... Generally, right, we have a professional scribes, we have priests who can all, might also be literate, professional classes mm-hmm. that are literate. Ashurbanipal was also literate and very proud of it. Yeah. Right? So this is why he collected these. He wrote, so he could write, he arranged, he collated, and for his royal contemplation, he put these, and recital, right, he put these in his palace. Um, so this is his yeah. library. He's not just paying people to keep it up for him. Right. Or what is it that um, what and is this it is, that he does in The Great Gatsby is he buys all the books but he doesn't cut the pages? Like Yes. Ashurbanipal did not have pages, but if he did he would have cut them. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um 
And that is right. That's sort of his point. And so here we have one of the first examples of a library that is clearly on some level governmental, obviously, but in other ways, is, in other ways, clearly mm-hmm. private. I mean, a clear example of a true sort of private library. <laughs> um, co- yeah, collected by someone who could read it and wanted to read it and wanted these books in his library so that he could be the one to read them, <laughs> which is, you know, sort of phenomenal. Um, so there are there's tons of stuff. I mean, there are lots of archival documents, which is why we also know that this is also a working governmental library as well, of course. Um, but he was very proud of the fact, as he should have been, that he had sort of mastered writing. Um, and so we have, in addition to all of the archival governmental texts, you know, the record keeping. Um, We also have a huge component of omen texts um, and then technical religious literature and magic. So that would be sort of rituals, incantations, prayers, right? So if you, that's technical in the sense that, you know, these are the sort of Mm -hmm. manuals, right? Like I need something to help my horse get well. Where's that spell? (laughs) Right. Um, And then we have, um, you know, some of the same sort of scholarly things that we were talking about. So um, lists of sort of, I mean, things that scribes would use when learning. So um, lists of cuneiform signs with how you read them, um, lists of words and names, dictionaries even for translating between Sumerian and Akkadian. Nice. (laughs) Can you imagine? Yeah, right? And of course, these are, a lot of times these would be called more um, like word Mm -hmm. lists instead of you know, what we think of as a dictionary today with full definitions. But yeah, right. Um, and then, of course, famously, again, the Epic of Gilgamesh, of course. Um, so it's been estimated that his library contained about 1500 titles. Wow. Different titles, right? So, but many existed in multiple copies. Hmm. So the total number of tablets, that's why the total number of tablets is sort of in the thousands, high thousands. But um, so... You know, you could have as many as six copies, but they're about 1,500 individual Was titles. he lending them out? Or were there scholars Aha. coming to... Yes. So, yes, this is a library that is working in a lot of ways the way modern libraries work. So um, one of the exceptions is, of course, modern libraries, also medieval libraries, um, you borrowed things and copied them. Um, that's, you know, you increased your collections by borrowing things and copying them, by buying books, by having people give you books as a bequest or mm-hmm. as a gift, right? <laughs> um, Ashurbanipal, of course, was a, an Assyrian king. Um, one of the things he did was complete a war against his half-brother, who was the ruler of Babylon. Um, and he then went to the temples, <laughs> took their tablets, and brought them back to Nineveh. Okay. So the smaller libraries of Babylon end up in Nineveh in Ashurbanipal's library. I gotta library. say, when I was also, in library school, hmm? we didn't talk about outright conquest as a method of collection growth, but it does seem to yep. have a certain legitimacy. Oh, I mean, throughout the Middle Ages, the Crusades, mm-hmm. like, you know, that's how all this stuff ended up back in <laughs> Europe, basically. I mean, yes. Um, yeah. You know, and it's, of course, not the best thing. And there have been some fun commentaries recently. There was a meme going around on Facebook that I think I've already mentioned somewhere um, that just showed the 
British Library, uh, the British Library, actually not the British Library, because that is, has a lot of British stuff, um, that showed the British Museum empty. Oh, yes. And it was like, you know, when the British Museum gives back all the stuff it took from <laughs> colonialism, <laughs> this oh, is my what God. it will look like. Yeah. Um, so, yes, here, here's the sort of the issue. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, Ashurbanipal did not get in trouble for this. So, yes, he took everything from Babylon that he wanted. Um, he also, of course, from other places in his kingdom. So remember, our first library um, had been in Ashur. I mean, our first Assyrian library, the one that we knew oh, the yeah. founder, right? Tiglath Pileser I. Um, so his had been a temple for Assur in Ashur. Uh, and remember, Ashurbanipal, of course, makes his capital in Nineveh. So um, he took all the stuff from the Ashur library <laughs> and also put that in his library. Um, and some of the ways we know how he got stuff is because some of the things actually say. Um, so, I mean, they're the sort of catalogs kind of like today where catalogs are supposed to show where something's mm-hmm. from, like known as provenance. Right. Um, so some of his catalog entries show provenance. Provenance is a really big part of the um, archival world, um, I should say. And also if you're dealing with old or rare book collections. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, Because you want to know where it's Mm -hmm. from so you can try and figure out who wrote it and why, who may have commissioned it. You know, again, because it shows the history of thought, the history of ideas, right? Um, So Ashurbanipal, um, in one case, he's got two tablets of Lamentations, one tablet, the Dream Book, in all 125 tablets um, from Arabu, an exorcist from Nippur. Okay. Um, and That's a yeah, good job if you can uh, get it, I guess. Yeah, well, sort of. Um, Kesson sort of um, theorizes that Ashurbanipal sent people around to, I mean, either outright confiscate or perhaps put in a, what he calls a royal, in quotes, request uh-huh. for people's books. So, um, Arabu, as an exorcist, would have been a scholar who had probably a small private library, um, and was willing to give up his works on the interpretation of dreams, but clearly kept things on actual exorcism, right? Because you'll notice the tablets on limitations and dream books, and, um, so apparently he did not give up things on, like, driving out Mm. demons, um... And this may have been a bit of a trade, like, <laughs> give us give us your books you're willing to part with, and there better be a nice chunk of them, right? Um, there's another one that says, um, there's a one-column tablet, Anti-Witchcraft, um, from Mesuzab Nabu, son of Nabusim Ikusin, um, scribe of the king of Babylon. Um, and in that case, he's the son of a scribe, and presumably one himself, um, and gave up a work on witchcraft, which might not have meant as much to him as other books that scribes needed, like dictionaries or word lists, vocabulary lists, stuff like that. Um, so <laughs> that's another way he went and got stuff. And the funny thing is, you know, he recorded it. Like, he recorded where the stuff, or someone did, right? Recorded where the stuff came from, which is how we know. Yeah. Um, also, so now we get into the fun part. Yes, obviously, um, scribes are using this library um and various governmental peoples are probably using this library um people might be coming in to copy things obviously ashurbanipal wants multiple copies of things Mm -hmm. himself probably because yes he might be willing to loan certain things if he's got enough copies to other people to copy or borrow um so 
all of these problems that libraries tend to have then arise, which is to say, of course, people stealing stuff, people, um, you know, defacing stuff, people not returning stuff on time. These are still 100% problems that modern libraries have, all of them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because you get a lot of articles that people will write in like the New York Times or wherever, and they'll say things like, I still have this book from my college library and I feel so bad (laughs) about it. Should I return it now? And you're, I mean, come on. Anyway. But yes, so the point is, um, some of these books, right, um, because some collections you could borrow, um, so there are tablets that sort of include curses um, and fun things like this. Ooh. So, for example, <laughs> um, one of these clay tablets, it says, right, clay tablet of Ashurbanipal, king of the world, king of Assyria, who trusts in Ashur and Enlil. Your lordship is without equal, Ashur, king of the gods. Whoever removes this tablet, writes his name in place of my name. May Ashur and Enlil, angered and grim, cast him down, erase his name, his seed in the wow. land. That's yeah. hardcore. Okay. So that's what you get if you start defacing <laughs> the texts or stealing them or things yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, there are some other fun ones. So this is a tablet that came from Ur- Uruk, um, Uruk, which is, you know, um, Ur. And uh, this one says, um, he who fears Anu, Inlil, and Ea will return it to the owner's house the same day. Hmm. Okay. So this is a one-day lending library, <laughs> right? Oh. Um, another one says the same thing, but we'll return it to the owner's house the next day. Okay. So that's a an overnight loan, right? Um, obviously, some libraries were not lending. You could come in and look, but you couldn't take it. Um, so there's another ritual tablet from Uruk that warns, um, quote, he who fears Marduk and Sarpantim, uh, will not entrust it to others' hands. He who entrusts it to others' hands, may all the gods who are found in Babylon curse him. Okay. Yes, so you better not take this out and give this to someone else. It's interesting that like um, all of the gods are enjoined in this. Like They don't have a specific um, library god. I know the Egyptians right. did, right? Yeah, because... Uh, had gods of writing, like Thoth. Yeah. Well... Yeah, I mean, it's funny, because of course, like, Marduk is the, you know, he's sort of the main god, mm-hmm. right? But all of these gods are, generally, yeah. Um, I think the the point is, of course, that I would also assume, you know, that gods who are specific kind of to writing, to scribes, to stuff like that, um, that's more to help you in your library work. I think in this case, uh, right, the point is that the big guns will yes. come out to, <laughs> you know, hunt you down. Like, this is, this is not to be taken lightly, yeah. right? The... The top dogs, so to speak, will come out and and get you. Okay. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because this is a personal point, right? I mean, Marduk is, of course, that's the point, right? (laughs) Invoking him. Um, Let's see. So others, so that's about, right, stealing or defacing. Um, There's also just ones that say things like, um, he who fears Anu and Antu will take care of this tablet and respect it. (laughs) Um. Or, this tablet, by order of Anu and Antu, is to remain in good condition. You know, I, uh... Which is fantastic. I have some no plates that say, like, <laughs> ex libris, but I think I want... I yep. think I want something more like that on them. 
Yes. I know, right? Um, and that's, you know, it is like today if you buy used books and it's like there is some highlighting, there is some whatever, and you're just like, ugh, why? <laughs> why? Um, yeah, so this is right. Anu will come after yes. you if you start highlighting this text. I mean, I know this is clay, but whatever it is you did back then. Um, and obviously, you know, even clay, like you could chip it, you could deface it. You could sand it down. You could certainly make things unreadable purposely or mistakenly, right? Um, and so that's sort of where a lot of this comes, right? Um, in the name of Nabu and Marduk, do not rub out the text. Who rubs out the text? Marduk will look on him with anger. All right. Um, so here we go. <laughs> oh, wait, here's a great one. I got to read this one. Um, he who breaks this tablet or puts it in water, which of course would be very Ooh, purposely destructive. Yeah. What? All right. So he who breaks this tablet or puts it in water or rubs it until you cannot recognize it and cannot make it be understood. May Asher, Sin, Shamush, Adad, and Ishtar, Bel, Nergal, Ishtar of Nineveh, Ishtar of Arbala, Ishtar of Bitkidmuri, the gods of heaven and earth and the gods of Assyria. May all these curse him with a curse which cannot be relieved, terrible and merciless as long as he lives. May they let his name, his seed be carried off from the land. May they put his flesh in a dog's oh mouth. My goodness that is yes all of the gods that they had ever heard of <laughs> yeah all of the ishtars That's every amazing. incarnation of ishtar yes. <laughs> yes which is fantastic and i'm pretty sure when they say his flesh in a dog's mouth that we're not just talking like his arm okay i could be wrong some this sort is my of assumption <laughs> like some sort of terrible desecration of his person anyway yes um but, and you'll notice, I mean, some of these curses, of course, a lot of them, they are similar, right? So let his name, his seed be carried off from the land, right? So you are being completely obliterated. Like, if you deface this text, then you yourself will be completely obliterated. Um, which is really a sort of wonderful point. I mean, this is this thing that still, of course, drives people mad who like books um, or libraries, you know, generally speaking. Um, and that is this sort of interesting reminder that it's not just an object right and this is always the point that libraries and the things they contain this is why we started our discussion sort of of mm -hmm. knowledge right that they are ideas and that is that if you deface this if you start to erase it you are erasing knowledge and ideas um and who are you to do that mm -hmm. <laughs> that is not up to you right that is censorship or whatever um and so may you also be erased, essentially. So, um, yeah. So they're, they're these sort of wonderful. Yeah. Anyway, they're wonderful. So, okay, there we go. Um, there's some other fun ones. Let's see. Um, render him deaf in some cases. Carry off his eyes. That's another one. Um, the scholar who does not seal the document and replaces it in its holder, may Ishtar regard him with joy. Oh, well, that's a nicer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you'll be rewarded if you do good. Um, he who makes it leave, <laughs> may Ishtar denounce him with yeah. anger. All right. Um, all right, so the, so here we go. So this is the beginnings of, right, all of the things we sort of think of libraries and also all of the problems that go with libraries. Um, people stealing things, taking things, defacing things, right? The idea of trying to erase ideas or um, erase people from history by, you know, mm -hmm erasing their names um it feels like something would be a lot more possible if your kingdom had like one copy of a tablet versus nowadays when you you know it's not like 
there are I definitely have books in my house right now that I could not just buy off of Amazon and replace them, but they're it's right. a lot harder to wind up in that situation. Right. Um except of course if you go to like the Folger Library or the, or the Bodland yeah. or yeah. you know the Beinecke or you know today like rare books that is sort of the right there frequently is nothing else. Yeah. There might be only one copy. Obviously some things there are a lot of copies even today. But even so, it's not like there are enough copies of Chaucer that you wanted to face one. And there's only like one Ellesmere copy with great illustrations. Right. right. <laughs> you don't want to, right? So there, there's a reason. But this is the other problem, right? So now libraries, books like that, the Linda's Farm Gospels, right? Libraries digitize them, which is amazing because you can see things you could never see, you know, sometimes even with the naked eye. But you can do things with digital and x-ray and stuff. You can see um, palimpsests. You can read them. Um, but at the same time, books are meant to be experienced, right? So the idea of, well, we digitized it so no one can ever see it again in person also really kind of defeats the purpose of a library. Yes. <laughs> um, so these problems, right, they continue to sort of exist in ways. But you're right. I mean, your ordinary library will be mad at you if you destroy a book, but not in the right. same way that would have I been mean, true back people then. People yeah. definitely still try to suppress ideas by removing books from libraries. Um, mm -hmm. Usually they will just say like, oh, I lost it or something. You know, we don't have a ton of people burning books anymore, but mm -hmm. um, for controversial books, people definitely take them out and, quote, lose them. Um, and yeah. It can cost yeah. the library money and like, it's not like mm -hmm. it's not like a tiny public library has a huge budget to constantly be buying copies of like whatever whichever book the, is banned yeah, this week yeah the two yeah two gay penguins mm -hmm. or whatever but right um, yes tango and <laughs> tango, tango makes three yeah. i think that's the book yeah, yeah but you know it's easier to replace mm -hmm. it it's harder to just suppress the ideas by yes yes um, which is, of course, what printing has yeah. given us, right? I mean, the, the press, the printing press. Yeah. Um, and the digital world. But that is sort of the fun point, right? That we have banned mm -hmm. Book Week, you know? Um, that this, it's still a recognizable thing. It, it is harder to do. It's so much harder yes. to do. <laughs> but it, it is very recognizable, right? Um, okay, so I just want to sort of fast forward a bit. Um, I want to recognize Greece, um, Greece, we start to have schools. So we're talking about like the 500s when theater is happening in Athens. Um, and of course, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle have their schools in the 400s and the 300s. Um, I mean, and many other philosophers as well, but, um, so schools sort of throughout Greece or the Greek speaking world, I guess, um, we're starting to get into schools like we talked about in our children's episode when we talked about schools, right? Boys go to school and they learn how to read and write. And this is starting to be fairly common. So the Athenian population, at least Athenian citizens, it is assumed like a lot of them absolutely were literate, had a certain degree of literacy. Um, and noble women as well learning to read and write at this point. So there are absolutely literate women as well. They don't necessarily go to schools the way the boys do, but they are learning at home. Um, so literacy is starting to be wider spread, which is something else that, of course, libraries mm -hmm. do, right? On some level, 
when you are collecting texts and everyone sort of needs right you have a professional class that read and write um there's a reason why Ashurbanipal learned right it was a lot of work to <laughs> learn cuneiform yes it doesn't have an alphabet um but you learn because knowledge is power you have access if you can read the written word that you do not have if you can't, even if you are a king like Ashurbanipal, right? And so libraries, by collecting all this knowledge and making it accessible, suddenly the class of people who can read and write it <laughs> and add to it and understand it start to have incredible power if they are the only ones who can unlock that. So, of mm -hmm. course noble people are going to start learning to read and write because you can't let your scribe class overthrow you. Right. And then as they learn to read and write, other people are going to need to learn just because you have to communicate with the palace. Mm -hmm. You can't always be having your own scribe somewhere. You might have to communicate with the palace. You need to at least know enough to be like only two cows this year. <laughs> there was a plague or whatever, right? Um, and so we get the growth of of wider learning, um, which might seem as kind of, um, I don't know, it might seem counterintuitive, the idea that sort of a repository of knowledge in one place would cause more people to be able to read and write. But that is sort of what, what happens. Um, you know, so schools, you got to train more scribes. So you have more schools with more libraries. And then, of course, not everyone who goes to them is going to be a scribe. People are going to go to school, but then want to do something else. As happens yeah. to me, right? <laughs> um, so you suddenly start to have, right, the sort of growth of literacy, really. Um, we'll talk more about literacy next time. But I just wanted to give a shout out to Greece for having some mm -hmm. of this, for having sort of much wider literacy. And then, of course, because of Greece, we get Alexander the Great. <laughs> That's not exactly how that goes. But the point is, Alexander the Great, having been educated by Aristotle, like Ashurbanipal, has this really devout love of learning and of stories and supposedly right visited what was supposed to be the grave of achilles and wept because he did not have a homer to record him the way achilles <laughs> did um it's not like anyone has forgotten right. him but but at the same time it is true i mean we do not think of him the way we think of yeah. achilles for sure he named um, a lot of places after and, himself i'm gonna say um i mean he yeah. did yes yeah. Oh, he made sure we weren't going to forget. But it always helps to have a Homer who can record you, and he did not. Yeah. And honestly, not only did he not then, but no one ever really has. I mean, Shakespeare didn't create a, a great Achilles, mm -hmm. even. I mean, everyone in Charles and Cressida is a terrible person, pretty yeah. much. Which is kind of the point of that play. I mean, it's a big anti-war play. But <laughs> um, but Achilles is is almost downright evil. I mean, he is pretty evil. He's pretty straight up evil in yeah. that play. So, I mean, I mean Achilles... I feel like my view of him was know. warped because the last version of Troilus and Cressida I saw, um, my husband was playing Achilles, so... Ah, well, he was evil, I bet. Wasn't I mean, he? <laughs> he scowled and flexed his muscles a he, lot. Like, but... Well, I mean, he murders Hector in, like, cold blood, you know? But this is the point, right? So that's what Shakespeare does to Achilles despite Homer... And let's be fair. I mean, if you read the Iliad, Achilles is kind of a spoiled brat. Well, yeah. But but by the end, he is terrible to Hector. I mean, all of that is true. But by the end, he has he has learned his lesson. He's going to accept his death with grace. He knows he deserves it. His father will not get to bury his body because of how terrible he was. Um, but you know, I mean, so Shakespeare then goes off and creates this Achilles, who is basically this villain. Um, 
but yeah, Alexander, well, I mean, he's still super famous. It's not like you don't know about him, <laughs> but he doesn't show up. I mean, he just doesn't become part of that mythic no, sensibility, really. right? Um, and he really wanted to be. Like, that's sort of really the point. He wanted to be the sort of person that, you know, thousands of years later, someone like Shakespeare would write plays about. Um, and he just never made it into that conversation in the same way, somehow. Um, I mean, even when it comes to movies, there certainly have been movies about him, but they're way more about, like, Cleopatra and whoever, right? That became the new mythos, right? Rome. Yeah. Um, and, of course, that's because they created their own mythos. Um, yeah. So sort of you get Homer, and then you get Cleopatra in Rome. Um, but yeah, so poor Alexander appreciated a library, um, founded a place called Alexandria. <laughs> As I said, he um, he was like, what should we call it? Let's name it after yes. me. Well, he wasn't, you know, he hasn't been yeah. forgotten, but he was trying not to leave he, it to chance. He's the one I with the general's hat. He gets to make the call. He does. Um, but yeah, he did have this really sort of... Um, investment he had a huge investment in education and stories and literature and all of that stuff um so there is this sort of question um the library of alexandria <laughs> um to a large extent of course it comes into being after alexander has died mm -hmm. um so how does that happen and how does that lead us into the middle ages um I think perhaps we should this is it. where we'll begin yeah. next time. Um, Those are excellent questions. But yeah, so that is sort of the founding of libraries, the growth of how they're organized, why they're important, because they do shape how we think in very, very, very real ways, concrete ways. Um, but also all of the things that go into it that we don't even, that I think we sort of take for granted now, right? How do you categorize stuff? How do you keep in touch with everything? How do you know if you've lost a volume? How do you know where to find the volume to begin with? Um, so ideas of cataloging and numbering and giving things titles, yes. <laughs> um, all of this stuff, right. That is slowly invented. Um, and the library of Alexander is going to finish a lot of that, um, just in time for Rome in the middle ages. Okay. Yes. Well, this is very exciting. So, um, cataloging was my thing when I was in library school. So, uh, yes, I'm looking forward to hearing more about the transition, um, Yay! Yeah. And then we'll also talk more about literacy. Okay. Which, as I said, is starting to grow and will take off. But we'll leave it there for now. So uh, thank, thank you to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Um, you can follow us on Facebook. And you can check out our website at askmedievalist.com, which also allows you to send us messages through our Contact Us form. Uh, finally, you can send us emails at questions at askmedievalist.com. Um, I think that's it. Yeah. Cool. So until next time, um, keep on reading books and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff. 
performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com.